You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I am Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Marilyn Huang. So Dr. Huang is a gynecologic oncologist specializing in clinical trials at the University of Virginia, and her research goal is to enhance women's health by bringing novel therapeutics and innovative drug combinations in clinical trials programs. She has been awarded multiple industry-sponsored investigator-initiated grants to evaluate new treatment options in gynecology cancers with a particular focus in immunotherapy. So as you can imagine, we have a lot to chat with Dr. Huang today and um, on everything related to immunotherapy, uh, ovarian cancer recurrence, new things, new advancements happening in this space. So stay tuned as we go along with this conversation and grab your coffee. I have mine as we connect over coffee with Dr. Huang for the next 45 minutes to an hour. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Huang, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee, an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Renzi, and thank you for inviting me to talk with you. I um, have already over-caffeinated enough today, so <laughs> I did not bring my coffee. We um, will drink for you. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, everyone should enjoy their coffee, um, and thank you for your kind introduction. Thank you. So, Dr. Huang, um, I know that your primary interest lies in new drug development and clinical trials. So can you tell us more about your interest and what are some of the trials that are developmental work that you may be leading and are involved in? Sure. So I first got interested in drug development when I was a um, clinical fellow, um, and I realized um, during that treatment for patients and my work with patients that chemotherapy really had a limited role in cancer treatment. Um, And that was probably around the time when um, the first immune checkpoint inhibitor, CTLA-4, was approved by the FDA in other disease sites other than um, GYN cancers. And so that kind of really piqued my interest in how can we do better for our cancer patients. Um, And I had the opportunity to develop, as you mentioned, several investigator-initiated studies looking at different combinations of Um, chemotherapy with immune checkpoint inhibitors. And um, the specific studies I've been able to look at was um, first in ovarian cancer, I was able to look at the combination of chemotherapy plus an immune checkpoint inhibitor as neoadjuvant therapy, and then following interval cytoreduction for ovarian cancer patients. Um, And that study I recently closed, so hopefully I'll have some um, data out later this year Um, The other study that I was able to look at was um, in cervical cancer, um, looking at combining immune checkpoint inhibitor to the kind of standard of care chemotherapy plus um, an um, anti-angiogenic drug. So um, that study also closed and hopefully I'll have that data. So it's very busy um, time right now to hopefully get some of that data um, out. Um, so that we can learn more about the patients that potentially benefited and those that did not benefit. So I think there's importance here um, to learn from both patients that benefited and that did not benefit and maybe as to why we don't think the treatments worked. Thank you, Dr. Huang. So we are also fresh out of the SGO meeting, right? This recently happened. Lots of new um, results and developments and data were released. So just, you know, I know that we don't have time to go over everything, but can you please tell us about the three or maybe top five highlights that were presented at the SGO when it comes to ovarian cancer? And what should our overcomers know about the new options that are either now available or just emerging in both uh, platinum resistant as well as in the sensitive space? Yes, this is a great question. Um, there is There was a lot of exciting data that was presented at, at SGO this year. Um, and so for me, some of the things, um, the studies that really caught my attention um, were the first study was GOG3026, which was a phase two study um, of letrozole in combination with a CDK4-6 or ribocyclid 
um, in women with recurrent low-grade serous ovarian cancer. So um, not as common as the high-grade serous ovarian cancer, but um, equally as important to develop uh, effective treatments for patients that um, recur with disease. And so the combination of these two oral medications um, will hopefully um, lead to additional treatment options for patients that are diagnosed with low-grade serous ovarian cancer. Um, one of the other studies that really caught my eye um, was um, a study out of MD Anderson Cancer Center led by Dr. Weston, which um, was borrowing from our medical oncology colleagues utilizing a PARP inhibitor as neoadjuvant therapy in BRCA mutation carriers with breast cancer. This trial examined the feasibility of a laparib in the neoadjuvant setting for BRCA mutation carriers with newly diagnosed ovarian cancer. Well, so while the study was a small study, the results are compelling, and we are hopefully taking another step to further personalizing and optimizing treatment for our ovarian cancer patients. Um, the Another treatment study that I um, thought was also very compelling was on marvituximab, which is an antibody drug conjugate, which was FDA approved in November of last year. Very exciting. Um, but how we utilize this new drug in our armamentarium for ovarian cancer treatment um, hasn't clearly been pieced out yet. So um, Dr. Coleman presented some um, data that will hopefully help guide some of the sequencing of these therapies for our patients. Um, and I think it was very important to know that, you know, do patients that have had prior bevacizumab, um, how do we sequence this in that platinum-resistant setting um, with mervituximab? Um, two other studies I just felt like was worth mentioning if we have time. Um, they're not treatment trials, but I think equally as important for our um, audience. The first study was a randomized study out of Duke that was looking at cryocompression which is um, to help prevent um, chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, which um, can be very debilitating in some of our patients. And they looked at using a compression sock on the foot and surgical gloves on the hands with bags of ice that they started kind of before the initiation of chemotherapy throughout chemotherapy and for a little bit of time after chemotherapy to see if it would help reduce um, the side effects of peripheral sensory neuropathy, um, which you know I think if we could develop better treatments for this very um, debilitating toxicity, then we may be able to kind of leverage better treatments in the future. Um, the other study was a study out of UVA led by Dr. Ring that was using AI um, to get virtual genetic information to help identify high-risk patients for genetic counseling at hopefully a lower cost and identifying more patients um, that should be um, tested. And in this way, this um, will hopefully identify patients that are high risk that may benefit from risk-reducing measures to help prevent cancer. So that was a um, quick whirlwind of the SGO, but there were also many, I'm sure, other exciting studies that were presented. So that was a lot to unpack right there, but uh, I have just to, just going back to uh, mm -hmm that you mentioned. So um, let's talk about Dr. Weston's trial for a second. I think it's called the NOW trial, right? Yeah, exactly. um, so that one That one is for, uh, and you mentioned that is, that's for the uh, BRCA mutation carriers. So, um, and so, and this is also for the ones that are just diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Can you help us understand that a little bit? So how, so let's say that someone is a carrier of BRCA1 and 2 or 2 um, and they just get diagnosed, how would they get on this trial and what are the benefits and what is it actually trying to, you know, what's the end um, goal of this trial? Right. So that's a great question. This was, um, you know, only done at MD Anderson Cancer Center. So I think um, some of the challenges of clinical trials is that 
if we all lived near a cancer center where we could enroll on the clinical trial, that would certainly be much easier. So I think um, geographic limitation and um, proximity to a cancer center or hospital system that um, offers the study is often a um, limiting step to enrollment. Um, the goal, I think, of their study was to um, determine if it was possible, if it was feasible to um, utilize a laparib as neoadjuvant um, treatment rather than chemotherapy, because in, in standard of care, when patients have advanced stage disease um, that we feel may not benefit from a primary debulking surgery, the utilization of adjuvant, neoadjuvant chemotherapy is a way to chemically um, debulk the tumor before we um, have an interval cytoreduction. So the elaborate was, you know, it's a very fast turnaround. So these patients, if they're not, if they don't have a known BRCA mutation at the time of diagnosis, um, when they make that diagnosis of ovarian cancer, they immediately obtain genetic testing. And I think she mentioned that their turnaround time was about seven to 10 days, which, you know, is also probably right around that time frame to line up the other um, studies that would be needed to prepare a patient for potentially surgery or right. um, chemotherapy. So they utilize that time as, you know, part of that preparation to get that information to offer to their patients with newly diagnosed ovarian cancer, that this would be a potential option for them. Yeah, so they get, get they get put on PARP like immediately instead of chemotherapy. And so, right. and so the as you said, the results seem to be positive. So now they're going to develop on it as they go forward. Right. So they're um they are as she mentioned that they are currently still they're um enrolling additional patients. Um I think there were only about 15 patients that were enrolled in the study currently. But it's very exciting because you know, um when you're not feeling well, being diagnosed with an advanced ovarian cancer, um, it's a lot of information to take in. And I think um chemotherapy toxicity is real. You know, most patients lose their hair. Um they're in a chair in the infusion center for usually six hours, maybe longer, depending on the infusion center. Um, yeah. But the day itself is a long day. They have to see their doctor. They have to see, get their blood work drawn. You know, it's all, it's very um, time consuming and um, it's scary, right? It's a scary thing versus a pill that you could take in the comfort of your home um, certainly the side effects shouldn't be minimized and are also um, some patients really do have side effects from the oral medication as well, but um, you can be with your family, you can have your support system right there with you, um, you're at home. And so there's definitely advantages of a oral medication that you could potentially do at home if it's as good as the neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I think that would really open some opportunities for us to see um, develop this as a new paradigm shift for ovarian cancer patients with BRCA mutation carriers. Absolutely, it definitely could be practice changing, as you said. And then going back to the um, the MARV uh, data that was just published, and and we have spoken to both Dr. Coleman and Dr. Matlon as the main PIs for this study. It is also very promising but again just to um just to you know for, further clarify this is meant for those patients with the uh, folate receptor alpha positive patients right so which is about 30 to 35% of the platinum resistant patients so it's great development but still not for the majority uh correct is that, okay is that accurate yes that is absolutely right so yes it is a treatment for platinum uh recurrent platinum resistant recurrent ovarian cancer with folate receptor alpha positivity yeah. using their um, the Fantana Folar one test for immunohistochemistry. So I think getting those results, um, I think initially when the FDA approval hit, there was so much excitement that um, they didn't have enough um, of the antibody to perform the test. Okay. So we saw a little bit of a delay in that, but I think we've been able to get patients tested now um, 
pretty quickly. So that um, I think a lot of pathology labs are looking at to see if they can incorporate that lab test into their um, own panels so that it would not take as much time if we had to send it out. That's that's wonderful because even 30, 35% is not insignificant. It's a pretty high percentage of patients that could benefit from this uh, treatment. So thank you for sharing all that with us. So um, you also specialize in immunotherapy. So let's talk about immunotherapy for a second. We know that, you know, immunotherapy still doesn't work as well for ovarian cancer despite our best efforts, right? So, but in your opinion, what progress have we made so far and what do you see in the near future shaping up in terms of, you know, combination treatments or just immunotherapy as a standalone treatment for ovarian cancer? Yes, so that's been very um, frustrating and disappointing with immunotherapy, specifically with the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, multiple large randomized controlled trials have been negative incorporating immune checkpoint inhibitors in um, combination with chemotherapy. However, since we just mentioned mervatuximab, um, the antibody drug conjugate, um, this may be another um, class of immunotherapy drugs that may have a lot more promise. There are over 60 clinical trials looking at different antibody drug conjugates with different targets. Um, so we may be, this may be a space for ovarian cancer patients um, and is exciting. So stay tuned for that. Um, I also think that the um, recent development of genomic information combined with bioinformatics and machine learning, there has just been an explosion in research aimed at developing these novel um, prognostic immunogenic immune ovarian cancer signatures, as well as targeted therapies um, for these pa patients. So I think there's still a lot more to come and hopefully as we develop these novel markers and design therapies to target these markers that we'll be able to really kind of customize ovarian cancer treatment in the future. And absolutely, I do believe, and I agree with you on the role of AI as it, it continues to develop, we can only get more precise when it comes to, you know, personalized treatment. So that'll definitely help shape um, the treatment for not just ovarian, for any kind of disease, I think, going into the future. So uh, thank you for that information. So now I wanted to, and all of us are interested to learn about, you know, recurrent ovarian cancer, because that's the majority of ovarian cancer patients, right? So, but we also understand that, you know, in certain patients, uh, even if they get diagnosed at an advanced stage, stage three plus, they never recur or recur after a very long time. And then there are other patients who, you know, maybe get diagnosed at an earlier stage, but they still recur after one, two, three, four years. So what is, you know, I often wonder, I mean, there has to be some unique characteristics and differentiation between these patients in their behavior of the cancer, right? So have uh, the patients who have not recurred for multiple years, have they been followed by any research study or you know, analysis which tells us why these patients did not recur versus the others who did? And what should our overcomers know about you know, this variation in recurrence that, that happens so that this can empower them with more information? share a little bit with us. Yes. So I think you just highlighted all of the challenges of, of ovarian cancer treatment, right? So um, like you mentioned, it is um, a very frustrating because the majority of our patients do recur um, with disease at some point. Um, what that time frame is has been kind of elusive. And for all of those things that you just mentioned, um, trying to um, pinpoint specific factors to help identify patients who may be good responders and who may have a long time from before the disease comes back versus those patients who don't do as well with their treatment. So um, it doesn't always feel like it, but I do think that we have made significant advances in the past decade. Um, one of the things that we know now is that the best treatment for ovarian cancer is to prevent it. So identifying patients that are high risk with germline mutations to discuss the risk of 
to discuss risk reducing options with them. Um, early diagnosis yeah. by ensuring that patients and their healthcare providers are um, educated and aware of the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer. Um, they're often vague. And so a lot of people um, just, and it's common, right? You just kind of keep going because they're so, it's not pain that kind of takes you to the doctor. You're, most patients aren't necessarily nauseous um, at the beginning stages. Um, they're vague things like abdominal bloating. Um, they may have some changes in their bowel and urinary habits, but most of the symptoms are very vague. So often um, easy to dismiss um, because it's not sharp, acute pain. So just educating providers and patients of those signs and symptoms is key to help earlier diagnosis. And we know that we do better um, with earlier diagnosis with treatment and curing patients with early um, stage cancer. The other thing that I would wanna touch on is the recent updated studies on the PARP inhibitors for our BRCA yes. mutation carriers either in their germline or in the somatic um, tumor mutations that, you know, they the studies were presented at ESMO last year. Um, and it really highlights um, the patients that are germline carriers tend to do better on treatment. Um, they have long disease-free intervals. And I think one of the things that when they showed the survival curves for the Solo one study with the um, patients that were randomized to a PARP inhibitor into the ones that were not. You know, we saw long term, as you mentioned, some of those patients were mutation carriers and they did not get a PARP inhibitor. And seven years out, they're still disease free. Granted, we saw more patients without disease that got a PARP inhibitor for two years after, as maintenance therapy after frontline chemotherapy but there are still patients in that cohort that recurred. So kind of looking at factors that can help us identify who is responding and who is not gonna respond. You know, we still have a lot of work to do there. Um, some things that we know are, you know, if we're able to optimally reduce, like resect the tumor at the time of surgery, um, all visible disease is better than any residual disease. Um, that's a little bit subjective based on your surgeon, but it's certainly one of the things that we know can um, drive recurrence. Um, things like a CA125 and the how fast it normalizes. You know, there's been a lot of studies looking at different markers, but we haven't been able to pinpoint one specific um, factor that kind of tells the whole story, if you will. So it's um, a combination of different factors. Um, and as we get more information, hopefully we'll be able to put it together more. Because certainly we don't want to expose someone to a PARP inhibitor if they have factors that will um, predict a good long-term right. outcome without additional toxicities of treatment. So um, there's still a lot of work to be done there. That's that's good. Thank you for thank you for the uh, clarification and the rundown of the uh, uh, of you know. Uh, the topics that we were talking about. So, you know, on the recurrence, you know, side effects, we, you mentioned the cryotherapy as one of the things that came out of the SGO, but I wanted to know more about the side effects of treatment, you know, because sometimes they are, they can be stronger than the, the treatment itself. And this is one of the, you know, number one things we hear from our patients and our overcomers about sometimes how, they can be so restrictive in terms of leading a full life, the side effects, right? The toxicity and the side effects. So um, can you tell us a little more about the cryotherapy that you mentioned as a new, it seems like it's a new research and emerging therapy in reducing toxicity in treatment or any other emerging techniques or um, ideas that you have that you may share with us? Yes, so I think this is... Um the cryotherapy and cryotherapy slash cryocompression right. um, was in very, it's been studied, but not well. And so I think there's ongoing studies that will hopefully give us more information because there's, as you can imagine, a lot of questions like, 
-hmm. How much do you need to cool? How long do you need to cool before? And because the other thing is we don't want to give a patient frostbite by cooling their hands and feet too much. Um, so kind of finding that right balance of how cold do we need to be and can we do it better? You know, I think the um, they in that particular study, they use bags of ice. Um, I will say our orthopedic colleagues have um, been able to partner with um, the sports industry to utilize different mechanisms in their post-op patients with cryotherapy to help reduce post-operative pain needs for narcotics. So um, I don't know if that would be a potential option, but certainly, you know, maybe utilizing better methods in terms of um, cooling so that it's not a bag of ice because that, you know, requires, it's low budget, but it still, it still requires, you know, constant changing of that ice, um, bag of ice that you're holding in your hands and putting on your feet, but potentially having gloves and mittens that have cryogel flowing through it. Mm -hmm. hooked up to an ice machine may do a better job at preventing um, neuropathy in these patients. So there's still a lot of room to um, develop research methods right. to answer these questions. Um, I think you mentioned um, some of the other toxicities. One of the big ones I think that we hear a lot of is the fatigue from yes. treatment. And um, there's no perfect... Um, intervention, but I think you may have heard about the ASCO endorsement last year regarding aerobic and resistance exercise during active treatment for cancer patients to hopefully help mitigate some of these um, side effects. So I do think that um, fatigue is one of those that's a vicious cycle that the more you quote unquote rest, you don't necessarily, you definitely don't get more energy by resting. Um, and so um, getting patients to become more active and actually deriving benefit from that physical activity is sometimes a little bit hard because they have other symptoms and may have other conditions that would limit some of their um, ability to exercise. But starting with things like walking, walking in a pool, um, you know, riding a stationary bike or, you know, just getting some sort of physical activity and incorporating resistance training um, with a physical therapist or with a personal trainer can really help um, patients combat that fatigue element of their treatment. Um, and then along the same lines um, of the cryotherapy for peripheral neuropathy is um, alopecia. Um, we see this a lot more with um, breast cancer patients receiving chemotherapy, but the Dignicap has been FDA approved for all solid tumors. Um, we probably don't see it used as much with our patients because of the duration of our treatment. Um, it's a long treatment. So to wear a cold cap on your head for sometimes six, seven hours can be really, really difficult and challenging. So um, hopefully with new advances in technology, we will hopefully be able to develop newer cooling methods to help our patients um, address the alopecia concern. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, you know, the side effects are, can be physiological, they can be emotional, they can be spiritual, they can be everything, right? So we, unless we treat all of them together or just even address, not even treat, address all of them together, we are not going to meet that endpoint of reducing the overall toxicity for for the overcomer going through these treatments. So I'm so, so thankful that you talked about the whole spectrum of the side effects that could potentially be addressed um, going forward. So, you know, you are an expert on clinical trials. So, and, you know, this is one of the things that uh, I often personally struggle with when it comes to clinical trials access, right? I mean, because we talk about clinical trials, we constantly tell or, you know, encourage others to sign up. But on the other hand, it is not always that easy to sign up for clinical trials, either because it's an access issue or is it, or it's because the providers don't talk to the patients about the um, availability of clinical trials. And, and especially where in different minorities and ethnicities, that's fine, don't worry about it. Okay. So uh, in minorities and ethnicities are concerned, it is sometimes, you know, um, 
they don't it's not equitable that's what i'm trying to say so what how in your opinion i know that we won't have the perfect answer to this but just from your perspective and your expert opinion uh what can we do to address this these issues so that it's made more accessible clinical trials uh, are made more accessible to our patients and overcomers that's a great point and so this was also a big topic at sgo this year and certainly a top priority is to make it equitable um, as much as possible. Because um, we know that in general, cancer patients that are have access to clinical trials live longer, usually because they have access to innovative treatments that may be more effective. Um, I think that we need to do this as a community. Um, so what works in one community may not work in another community and having buy-in from patients, providers, healthcare workers, um, all of the healthcare team really need to kind of buy into this. And I think even um, pharmaceutical companies, the people, the regulatory, a lot of how we do clinical trials is very rigid and it generally favors patients that can get to a large academic cancer center or health system. And so clinical trials are not historically done in the smaller communities. So potentially partnering with your community hospitals to offer those trials. They may not have the team or expertise to do that, but potentially partnering with the community hospital with an academic center in the area may, will hopefully allow more patients access to the trials so that um, we have better representation of patients on the study so that it's more generalizable in the real world. Because I think what we see in clinical trials, you know, if it's 98% white patients, you know, that may not be the same for black patients, for Hispanic patients, for Asian patients. Like, I think we know that it's not the same. You know, we see this when we do trials across different countries, the response rates are not necessarily the same and the toxicities aren't the same. So um, when we do these trials, having better representation of our actual patient population in our country is very much needed so that we can provide data to our providers and to our patients to be able to counsel them on appropriate treatments. And you bring up such a such a great point also because, you know, um, ethnicities in, in terms of everything, right? Uh, physiologically, every... We, we are all different. And so the the response rates and the reactions and you know impact of the treatment for one person may not be the same as the other person. But when you are uh, enrolling, let's say 25 patients who, who are all you know in the Caucasian population, and then you know you are basically taking those results and, be, and then you are generalizing for the you know it is it is incorrect in, in my opinion. Um so just enrolling more patients from different ethnicities that if it's more diverse, then we have a more holistic view of what the clinical trial is actually, you know, doing. And in terms of also the broad generalization that we will do with the results that finally come out. So it's so important that we don't forget to enroll and have, give more access to patients from different backgrounds. So Thank you for mentioning that. And on, on that note, you know, I was doing a very quick search on, on the clinical trials website and I was looking for just, just ovarian cancer trials nationwide. So I, I think I came up with about 390 trials that are, you know, all over the country. Now, my question is that when, when you, and I'm staying on this point because let's say there are 390 clinical trials, but each of these trials are probably enrolling very few patients, right? I mean, so certain trials are very small, other trials are a bit larger, but it's not enough to enroll everyone. So it, so it's, my point is if everyone wanted to, you know, enroll on clinical trials, either they're going to be rejected in terms of access or their eligibility criteria or their whatever that is. So how can we make, you know, is there any push or, um, 
to expand the inclusion criteria in, in clinical trials so that more women are not only able to learn about them, but also actually able to sign up if they're interested. Definitely. So that was also discussed at the SGO meeting. And certainly a lot of um, people have been thinking about exactly how, how would, what would this look like and how do we do this? Um, and so certainly thinking about how do we offer more trials to, or even the number of studies that we actually have, how do we get those to the patients that want those studies? Mm -hmm. And I think broadening those inclusion criteria is definitely um, at the top of that list. Certainly, I think a lot of the studies were written with inclusion criteria that was probably based a lot on chemotherapy and a lot of it was kept in and just, you know, not really questioned. Um, so I think for most of our studies, you know, the age re requirement is greater than 18. Um, there's not necessarily an upper limit, but I certainly think there's that inherent bias um, in providers, and I think that's natural, but certainly kind of developing ways to overcome those inherent biases will help um, offer potential patients more opportunities for studies, but also writing these inclusion criteria as less restrictive. So if we don't really have a good reason, like why do we really need someone's hemoglobin to be nine? You know, we know that patients with um, ovarian cancer, if they've been treated with even one line of chemotherapy, their hemoglobin, they may live at, you know, eight and a half, nine. So it, it's always that, you know, what is magical that happens um, at nine that does not occur at 8.6, for example? Mm -hmm. um, and why are we excluding that patient um, if anemia is not a significant concern for toxicity? then we should probably be looser in our um, inclusion exclusion criteria. And thank you for, for clarifying that. So important because, you know, I understand when I speak with the physicians like you, uh, it, it's, uh, it's always that question or, or the, uh, the point that comes up that, you know, the patients should understand and, uh, you know, access and sign up on clinical trials. But when we are talking to the patient community, you know, in often, often in, in many instances, we get the feedback that we do want to sign up, but there, there's so many limitations for us to be able to sign up that it's not an easy process for us to, you know, just if we want to sign up, go sign up. It doesn't happen like that. So it, there is definitely a gap between which we, you know, we all have to work together to bridge the gap, I guess, because there is sufficient interest from what I understand, um, and also curiosity and also willingness to learn and sign up. But, you know, the, the two sides of the coin are just kind of not matching yet. So uh, right, our bridges have not been fully built yet. And so, right. yes, I absolutely agree that, you know, we all need to do our part to help um, one another so that we get access to the patients that want it. And for the patients that don't want it, you know, they, they, we want to at least offer it to them so that they can know that they don't want it. Because um, you can't say that you don't want something if you don't even know what it can do for you. And so I think having those opportunities and better able to kind of decentralize clinical trials um, would really help with enrollment. Because I think some patients, and I usually ask patients, you know, if you say no to this study, why? I want to know why Why is this study not something that you think that you can do? And, you know, you get a, a variety of different answers. It can be things like, well, it, you want me to come to get a blood draw four out of five days this week, right? And that's, it's time consuming, right? So they have to arrange to have, and it's usually not, you can't just go down the street to the local lab and get a blood draw. You have to come to this institution. You have to have blood work drawn at the this site. It's not usually just as easy as going and getting a blood draw. You know, it's usually involved with driving a distance, parking, um, time, waiting. And so, and it's stressful. It can be stressful. And I think our job is to, not make that process so stressful on the patient. So things like, could somebody go to the patient's house, right? Like to have a home blood draw, for example, I think that would be much more um, conducive for someone who already doesn't feel well to think about potentially participating. 
Um, if it's a long treatment infusion day, having things, you know, being aware, some of our women are very young. So having um, assistance with childcare, um, kind of errands that they have to do that they're instead they're spending a day and are sitting in our infusion center that they can't do. And then knowing that they're not going to feel well for a couple of days afterwards, you know, they they still have to live life. And how do we how do we make that happen? And what are those barriers? I think having those conversations with patients um, and with providers, with the pharmaceutical companies designing these studies will help us kind of navigate this bridge, if you will, to, so that everyone is on that same bridge and that we can provide it to people. Thank you. So, um, you know, while we are on the topic of clinical trials, just one more question that I had that I often see that there is this progression pre survival and this overall survival as the metrics and the endpoints and the goals of, the, of clinical trials, right? So, um, can you tell us a little more about each of these evaluation points? How are they different and how are they important in their own ways? And how does it, you know, which one is more important for the lack of a better term? And um, how do they each translate into enhancing the quality of life for our overcomers? Right. So in general, I think a good clinical endpoint should have clinical relevance to the patient, right? Like, so it should be meaningful um, to the patient population that you're designing the study for. So I think in general, overall survival um, has frequently been the gold standard um, because this tells us, you know, does, do you live longer with this particular treatment? Um, but it's messy because it takes a long time to design those types of studies. And um, most of those patients, it's not just that one treatment. So I think when we think about the SOLA1 data, um, we looked at patients that got a PARP inhibitor for two years after their frontline maintenance therapy. But if they recurred, they then subsequently get additional treatment. So when we look at overall survival in general as an endpoint, you know, it's very difficult to take into account those um, variable, additional variables that are introduced after the intervention has been um, undertaken. So I think that's why um, progression-free survival has been kind of more prevalent in more recent studies because it's a shorter um, time frame to look at. And um, it's usually kind of when they have their recurrence to when they start or enroll on the study until progression of disease or death. So it's a much um, shorter time frame than the overall survival endpoint. Um, the it provides a little bit probably more objective because you're just looking at that one particular endpoint, uh what I'm sorry, one particular treatment that you're looking at versus, you know, usually the overall survival, they can have other subsequent therapies, as I mentioned. So it makes it harder to kind of tease out, is this benefit from this particular treatment or did the patients go on to have something else that was also very beneficial that makes it hard to determine if which treatment was actually making that effect longer. It's more specific and more narrow. Um, that makes sense. Absolutely. Thank you. So uh, we know that, you know, that even though there is no answer and wish we all knew the answer, how to prevent the recurrence of ovarian cancer, we know that it this remains top of mind for all our overcomers, right? So in terms of just general advice or guidance, um, what would you share in terms of managing expectations, uh, one's you know, getting diagnosed with ovarian cancer, managing expectations about the ovarian cancer coming back and how to best prepare also for life after the initial cancer treatment when you are kind of, you know, that 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 part of phase when you are done with your initial treatment and you are, you're off of everything and you're just kind of, you know, in that waiting phase, which can be more anxious than the others. So any guidance or advice that you may want to share with us, we would love that. I think it's very tough because as you mentioned, it's once you have that cancer diagnosis, you can never go back to not having that cancer diagnosis. So I think it always weighs on the back of people's minds. Um, so I, and patients also want different things. So I think having an honest conversation with yourself 
and with your providers so that um, you can meet each other at the right time point. Because I think that it's not a one size fits all. Um, every Everybody has different um, expectations. They have different priorities. So I think kind of in order to help the providers help you, um, we need to know kind of what are your priorities, what's important to you, and kind of what are your goals, and how can we help you achieve those goals. Um, I think one of the things that we see frequently is, you know, some patients don't want to know um, all of the details of their cancer diagnosis, while others want to know everything. Most patients are probably somewhere in between, so we kind of have um, we provide as much information as um, some patients want and some patients um, that don't want as much and they want just kind of high level broad strokes. We, you know, we kind of try to tailor um, our counseling to what the patient wants and needs. Um, and it may be different for um, patients and their families. It's not um, uncommon that sometimes the patients don't want to know prognosis and um, kind of other things that are to come or that may we may expect, but their family does. Um, and so kind of having, you know, that conversation with the patient, you know, what do you want me to share with your family? What do you want me to tell you? Um, how kind of knowing how much or how little each person wants to know is helpful so that we can kind of prioritize our time together to provide that information. Yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, in terms of, and you talked about patients and families and, you know, interacting with them and meeting them where they are at. So that is definitely one of the uh, gold standard of um, physician care, I think. So in terms of, you know, um, defining success in patient care, especially in ovarian, something as complicated uh, as ovarian cancer, where there is no cure yet, how do you define success? I, <laughs> that's a great question. I would define success for each individual patient. Um, so some patients will say, you know, I absolutely cannot have peripheral neuropathy. I will do any treatment, but I cannot have that. So kind of success is, can I control their cancer, um, cure them of their cancer? And can I limit the exposure to any medications that may cause peripheral neuropathy and, you know, can we get them through this treatment without causing peripheral neuropathy if that's what's most important to them? So I've had patients say, I can't lose my hair. I, I cannot lose my hair. And while that may seem trivial to some, it is not trivial to many others. And so kind of saying, okay, well, it's not standard, but, you know, we can do this treatment um, as a way to kind of preserve your hair. Um, if you're willing to kind of take a non-standard approach to your treatment, we can think a little bit outside the box and try to get you the treatment um, that will hopefully control your disease um, and cure you as much as possible without compromising what is your non-negotiable. That's a great definition of success, Dr. Huang. Thank you for sharing with us because truly for each patient, you know, we know that there is no cure for ovarian cancer yet, but we are definitely moving towards the space. But however, at this time, there isn't any, but for every patient, success looks a little bit different. So as long as you're, we are working with the patient to take them to the point where they want to go, we define success that way. So that, that, was, a, that was a great answer. Thank you. So um, I've asked you a lot of questions. Is there anything, and I asked this to all our episode guests, by the way, is there anything that I've missed that you would like to share with, uh, with everyone listening? I think you, we covered a lot today. I will say that I think that um, the more that we hear from patients um, about expectations, priorities, I think the more that we as healthcare providers hear, the better we are able to design new studies and to prioritize the, um, the these new studies, right? So if we don't know that it's a huge priority for, um, and I think a lot of patients feel like they, don't want to speak up because they, you know, they're in this situation and it's it can be very isolating. And I think there is a power in numbers and speaking up, you're probably not the only person experiencing that symptom. Um, and we may not 
we only know kind of what patients tell us. And so some of the symptoms, you know, we can read, but it the, the studies report, but if you're experiencing that, we need to hear about it so that, um, and I think patients sometimes don't want to tell us all the side effects because they may be um, nervous that we may change their treatment, take them off of the treatment. But we, I think it is important to know what side effects that they're experiencing just so that we are comprehensive in our approach to systematically analyzing our data and to knowing what's important for the patient so that we can tailor our future treatments to um, address these um, potential toxicities and the design studies that are um, important for our patients. That is such a great message and such an important point that you raised that, you know, as patients, as family members, as advocates, we need to speak up and talk to our healthcare team about anything that we are feeling, experiencing, seeing, because unless you hear it from us, it is not possible for you to treat it the, the way you, you, you probably have the means to, but we, unless we share it with you, you don't know. So it's such an important thing to communicate, communicate, communicate with your yes. health team. So thank you for bringing that up. So just in closing, Dr. Huang, uh, what message of overcoming would you like to share with our audience and everyone, uh, all, all our followers worldwide? I would say just be an advocate for yourself, be an advocate for a loved one. Everyone has a family, a friend, a sister, a mother, you know, educate yourselves and to as to what are the high who are who is at high risk can we prevent this and what are the symptoms of ovarian cancer and don't take no for an answer thank you dr huang this was a great um, conversation we learned a lot from you and thank you for sharing your candid uh, thoughts on you know clinical trials access and equities and other things that we talked about today so very very appreciative of your time and overcomers hope this was beneficial for you we know that we learned a lot from dr huang today and um, you keep asking questions and if you have any questions as i said please uh, let us know we'll get it uh, try to address it uh, with for you with Dr. Huang. So with that, we'll come to a close of, for this episode, but keep watching and keep overcoming until we come back with the next episode. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.